Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love that binds them all together in perfect unity. Thanks, Aaron. Morning, church. If you got a Bible, let's go to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. And we will pick up where we left off last week, Colossians, chapter 3. How's everybody feeling? Good? I heard there's this thing going around, but you guys look strong. I was uh, at the uh, barbershop this week, and we were chatting about it. The guy's cutting hair, and the guy's in the chair, and... Uh, this one guy in the chair, I overheard him saying, I don't know why everybody's freaking about the coronavirus. I'm not worried at all. I hardly ever drink Corona. <laughs> and we all laughed because we thought he was kidding. But he was dead serious, like actually thought that the Corona beer caused the virus. And so I took the time to explain to him, that's not how it works. Drinking Corona is actually the only way to protect yourself from it, <laughs> which is what works for me. But... Um, let me uh, show you a, uh, a list that is uh, not going to raise anybody's blood pressure at all. I'll just read through a couple, uh, couple items, a couple topics for you and see what happens. Coronavirus, abortion, climate change, Black Lives Matter, wealth inequality, mass incarceration, Me Too, immigration, Religious liberty, gender equality, gun control, police violence, church sex scandals, LGBTQ plus rights, white supremacy, universal health care. I'm sure I missed a couple of your favorites. My apologies. We could go on and on. Um, <clears throat> my goal this morning is just to one by one work through each of these with you. <laughs> see if we can get to the bottom of it. <laughs> Um, in many ways, this list, not exhaustive, but begins to form a picture of the world we find ourselves living in. Um, it's simply, as North Americans, this uh, list captures so much of the tension, the anxiety, and some of the sources of the polarization uh, of the world that we find ourselves living in. And uh, on some of these topics, some of us have really strong feelings. Some of us have really um, significant life experience or education or expertise. Um, some of these issues are core to some of us. And uh, some of them we may not have engaged or thought much about uh, or especially thought about how our faith in Jesus would inform the way that we would think about some of these uh, various issues. Um, for some of these issues, we would find ourselves on the right side, and some of these issues we would find ourselves on the left side, so to speak. 
On some of them, we would find ourselves trying to embrace some sort of radical third way that doesn't fit nicely into either political camp or whatever. Um, but the truth is, whether it's this list or the one we'll be dealing with in 10 years or 20 years or 100 years from now, we understand that in this life and in this world, there will always be trouble. There will always be brokenness. There will always be the evidence and the effects of these things we call sin and evil and wickedness, corruption and injustice, the lack of peace, the lack of the way things ought to be. So obviously it would be ludicrous for me to try to say we're going to walk through each of these issues and come to some sort of shared answer on all of them. So the question I actually want to ask this morning is in this world, in a world that's characterized by polarization and by <clears throat> demonization of those on the other side, what kind of people does the world need most? <laughs> I think Jesus said something about that. What kind of people is Christ calling his followers to become in order to bring good news to a broken and polarized world. It's interesting, there was a study that researchers at Stanford did, and in 1960, they surveyed a group of adult, parents of adult children, and they asked those parents, who would you least want your children to marry? What kind of person would you least want your adult child to get married to? And the top three answers that they found in 1960 were someone of a different race, or someone of a different religion. Top two answers, sorry. Someone of a different race, someone of a different religion. When you fast forward, they did the same survey again just a few years ago and asked the same question of a new group of parents, who would you least want your child to marry? And the new answer is, well, if I'm a Republican, a Democrat. If I'm a Democrat, a Republican. Race and religion down on the list now. Political ideology takes the top spot. That was only in 2014. I'm not sure that we would say the polarization's gotten better since then either. What an interesting world we find ourselves living in. And the truth is, it's easy um, to fall into the belief that our discipleship to Jesus and our membership in his church has little to nothing to say to this broken, polarized, divided world. Or that our Faith and discipleship to Christ has nothing to do with how we go about inhabiting and working and living and playing and leading in this world. In this passage, just three verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul is continuing on in this conversation related to the new identity that those who are in Christ have received. That the truest thing about us now is not our nationality or our race or our political affiliation. It's not our career or any of the other markers or categories that culture would want to tell us to use to define ourselves. He says that for Christians, the truest thing about us now is that our life is hidden with Christ in God. That we have been made one with Jesus, united with him, incorporated with him. 
so that his identity has now become our identity. His father has become our father. His life has become our life. His mission has become our mission. For those who are in Christ, he is now the truest thing about us. And he goes then in verses 5 through 11, as we looked at last week, to describe some of the characteristics or the lifestyles or the attitudes that would be unbecoming of those who are in Christ. And it's a picture of sin, not just as here's the naughty things that Christians should avoid, but he's saying things like immorality and impurity and lust and greed and all this kind of stuff, he's saying it doesn't fit you anymore. If your identity is that of someone who's in Christ, then this stuff isn't who you are. It's not fitting. And it's not going to work well for you. So he uses this metaphor of taking off or putting off, and then in today's passage, he looks at the other side, and talks about those things that we would put on. It's a metaphor of getting dressed in the morning, taking off the stuff that doesn't fit, that isn't appropriate, that doesn't look good, and instead clothing ourselves with the right things. But he starts the conversation before he says, here's the virtues and characteristics you should pursue. In verse 12, he begins with a reminder of the truest things about us. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So before he says what we should be doing and what we should be becoming, he again reminds us of who we are. He uses three words to say, if you are in Christ, or more accurately, for those of us, for plural, for we who are in Christ, we are chosen we are holy, we are loved. I am chosen, I am holy, I am loved. Why don't you say that with me? I am chosen, I am holy, I am loved. Say it once like you believe it. I'm chosen, I'm holy, I am loved. And gosh darn it, people like me. We um, would do well to begin the conversation this morning by reflecting on these things that are declared to be true about us, whether they feel true or not. I think that these three words, in many ways, address some of the deepest needs of the human heart for belonging, for acceptance, for my life to have purpose, for me to have an identity and know who I am and who I belong to. To know that I'm chosen by God, that I'm wanted by God no matter who else has rejected me or deemed me undesirable, even if I'm the last pick on the playground, that God, the creator and redeemer of the universe, has chosen me as his own. That I'm holy. I've been pronounced holy. I've been given Jesus' record of righteousness and love. That when God looks at my life, he weighs it according to the life of Jesus. So I'm no longer plagued by guilt or by shame. But the identity of Jesus has been attached to me. And finally, I am loved. I'm loved with a love that this world knows nothing of. The deepest kind of love. By the one who made me and the one who knows me. 
and the one who gave his life for me. I'm chosen, I'm holy, and I'm loved. What happens when a community of people begin to live into that identity? What happens when those words stop being just things that we say and actually sink into our hearts? When we actually begin to believe this good news? Well, again, I would argue that a community of people that's living in the security of their identity in Christ is the kind of people that the world needs most. They're going to be the kind of people that are most prepared and the best equipped to navigate the broken, divisive, torn apart world that we find ourselves living in. And so Paul starts with this reminder of identity. There's nothing you need to do to be chosen holy and loved. You already are. Wanted, accepted, forgiven, and dearly loved. When those deep existential needs of the human soul find their fulfillment in Christ, then it frees us up to no longer look to other people or to other things to try to get those needs met. And instead of trying to use other people as a way to find my own significant security and identity, when significant security and identity are met in Christ, then I become somebody who's able to live a life of love, a life of compassion, a life of humility, a life of gentleness, a life of kindness. I no longer need to define myself against others to beat others, to win, or to justify myself or my beliefs. But I am secure and significant in my given identity in Christ. Paul begins to imagine what that would actually look like for a group of people to live out this identity. And before he talks about the way that we would interact within the world, within the larger culture, in this passage, he focuses and emphasizes what would that look like within the context of Christ's body? What does it look like for us to practice our union with Jesus in the relationships that make up the church? The Barna Group did a study several years ago, and they were trying to figure out the perceptions and associations that average Americans have when it comes to uh, faith, spirituality, and church. And here's one of the results that they found. Among Americans who don't find church important, those who say church isn't important, it's being 39% say they don't attend church because they find God elsewhere. Almost 40% say, I don't go to church, I don't need church, because I find God somewhere else. Now, that doesn't sound weird to us at all. We've, we know that there's lots of sources in our world for spiritual experiences. And this isn't to knock them. Some of us find 
the, find God out in the mountains, find God out in creation, find God in uh, yoga or whatever your thing is. There's lots of places that we can look to have spiritual experiences. But the assumption of this almost 40% is that I don't need to go to church to find God because I find God somewhere else. The assumption is that church is primarily about a spiritual experience between me and God. That the purpose of church is for me to have a personal spiritual experience. So if I find that somewhere else, why would I go to church? All I would simply say is that the missing piece of the equation is people. Here's another finding from the Barna study. Among Americans who find church important, these are those who say church is important, less than 10% say they attend church because they want to learn how to love other people well. So of churchgoers, there's all kinds of reasons that we value church, that we regularly attend church. And very low on that list is the idea or the belief that church is an environment or a context in which I can learn how to love others well. I don't think that that's the picture that Paul has of church. Yes, of course we come here hoping to have spiritual experiences. One of our highest values is the idea and the practice of communion. To, that our soul would truly commune with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that we would receive grace from him. That's one of the things we hope to accomplish and receive here. But there's also this invitation to become part of a family, to join a community, to enter into relationships that are often going to be complicated and messy, sometimes even draining. But if you understand that one of the primary purposes in Jesus' design for his church is to provide a classroom where we learn how to love other people well, all of a sudden you begin to understand church is perfectly designed for that. The church is perfectly designed to teach us how to love others. So we've talked about before, one of the pr predominant metaphors for the church in the Bible is that of a family, that we are the family of God, the brothers and sisters of Jesus who have been adopted into this new humanity, this new family. And one of the things that's so striking and fitting about the metaphor as church as a family is that we don't get to choose our family, do we? In fact, most of us, if we could have chosen our family, we would have chosen a little bit differently. At least, you know, there's a few that we would trade in for a different pick. You get to choose your friends, but we don't get to choose our families. They are chosen for us. And that is true, for better or worse, when it comes to our family of origin. And it's also true when it comes to the family of God. Henry Nouwen said that true community is the place where the person you least want to live with 
always lives. Or as you've heard me say several times, that we don't have true community until there's someone there who you wish wasn't. The invitation of the gospel, of a new identity, a new humanity, a new family, is that you have brothers and sisters, people sharing life deeply, people learning how to love one another well, people they never would have chosen, people that would never get along in the wild, have been made one and brought together in this organism called the church. Theologian Joseph Hellerman uses the phrase that salvation is a community-creating event. That by its very nature, our salvation isn't just about us individually having personal spiritual renewal and experiences, but to be saved in the truest, most biblical sense is a community-forming, community-creating event that we are saved into a family saved into a community. So if church was just about my personal experience, spiritual highs, warm fuzzies, spirit goosebumps every Sunday, I'd be the first to say it's not very well designed to guarantee that week after week. And specifically talking about our Sunday gathering here, there are weeks where the sense of God's presence is strong where it feels like the Spirit is here, that I'm hearing God's voice, I'm full of his peace, I'm full of the Spirit. There are weeks where the worship feels anointed and the, the, the preaching feels authoritative like the presence of Jesus is full. There are weeks like that. And then there's other weeks where I have no idea what this guy is talking about. And I'm making a grocery list. I'm checking my fantasy scores. And the band and the music, for whatever reason, isn't doing much for me or whatever it is. I'm just going, I came, I left. So why would we continue to show up for worship week after week if we're not guaranteed to get the thing that we're supposed to be getting here? It's because that we understand church is not primarily about a, prime, a private encounter of the soul, but it's about a public encounter with a God who meets us in community. We gather here week after week and throughout the week in homes and in coffee shops and in pubs because we're a family and we've been chosen for one another. And so Paul's logic here is that if we, as those who are secure in our identity in Christ, are to be transformed into the kind of people the world needs most, then before we talk about what that looks like out there, he's saying this community, this family of people, is the primary context and classroom in which you develop those skills and characteristics. In other words, let's start by loving each other well. And as we learn how to love one another well, two things will happen. 
Second, first, we'll be prepared to truly live a life of the love of Jesus to the world around us. But even before that, we will become a community that models the redeeming love of Jesus to a broken world. The idea is that the church would be a prototype community of love. That we would live as the one place in all of creation where the lordship of Jesus is unopposed. That we would live as a countercultural community where people from both sides of the political spectrum and rich and poor and young and old and male and female and black and white and everything in between, that unlikely people would find themselves caring, loving one another deeply in a way that the world knows nothing of. That's Paul's vision. And he lists these five virtues in verse 12. Clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, gentleness, and patience. And yes, those are all virtues we should pursue and pray for in life in general. But specifically, he's saying, amongst one another. In your relationships within the body of Christ. It's the perfect opportunity for you to try on compassion. Try on kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Show these things, be these things to one another. From there, he says, <clears throat> there's this other radical way of living that Jesus calls us into, and it's the way of forgiveness. Verse 13, bear with each other or be patient with each other. Forgive one another, and if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Here's what's so comforting about that to me. The true marker of a Christ-centered relationship isn't that we don't sin against each other. The distinctive of a Christ-centered relationship is that when we do sin against each other, we forgive. Because we're going to hurt each other. We are going to sin against each other. We're going to break each other's confidence. We're going to insult each other, exclude each other, put each other down, hurt each other's feelings. It's going to happen when you have this many sinners bound together for life. So he's saying, don't be shocked if there's sin in the church. That's going to happen. That's human. So what do we do with it? We forgive. Now, it doesn't mean sweep under the rug. It doesn't mean ignore or pretend. He's actually painting a picture of like this beautiful, deep, reconciling work, the work of the gospel happening horizontally amongst brothers and sisters. By the way, this is one of my only pieces of marriage advice as well. The distinctive of Christian marriage isn't that we don't sin against each other. We do. 
What makes our marriage Christian is that we forgive. Just as Christ has forgiven us. And then finally, he says over all these things in verse 14, all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I want to show you a commercial that uh, aired during the Super Bowl, if you watched a month ago or whenever that was. And uh, it was, of all the commercials, the one that got my attention as something I wouldn't have expected to see that day. The ancient Greeks had four words for love. The first is philia. Philia is affection that grows from friendship. Next, there's storge, the kind you have for a grandparent or a brother. Third, there's eros, the uncontrollable urge to say, I love you. The fourth kind of love is different. It's the most admirable. It's called agape. Love has an action. This is good. It takes courage, sacrifice, strength. For 175 years, we've been helping people act on their love so they can look back or look ahead and say, we got it right. We did good. Uh, the punk rock cultural critic in me really wants to tear that apart. But it's actually pretty great. Um, of course, we could wonder what New York life has to do with agape. <clears throat> but isn't it interesting that they know very well, these advertisers, who it is, what, what, what the world is that they're speaking into. A world marked by anxiety and division, polarization, instability. Where we're wondering who we are and are we okay? Are we secure? Are we loved? And they hijack our answer. That what does the world need most? What would it look like for people to truly live out their identity as those who were beloved so that they are freed up to live a life of love. Now, of the four loves, <clears throat> which one do you think Paul is talking about in verse 14 over all these virtues put on love? It's agape. And in that, we have this invitation to live as those who are deeply loved. And the symbol of agape that Christians have celebrated and received for centuries now is what it is that occurred at the cross. A co-suffering love a compassionate love, an enemy-loving love. Paul's entire ethic for how we ought to treat one another 
is how has God treated us in Christ? We forgive one another just as in Christ God has forgiven us. We accept one another just as in Christ God has accepted us and we love one another just as in Christ God has loved us. There's an awkward tension in this whole um, proposal when it comes to our being and our doing, our identity and our way of living. And it feels like a little bit of a chicken or the egg thing at times. It feels like Paul's logic is that we should be holy. Why? Because we're holy. (laughs) And that's actually true. There is this cyclical relationship between being and doing or our language for formation is that we're becoming who we are. And so there are times when we recognize that this list of virtues doesn't describe me. And I would have to say, I am not a compassionate person. I'm not a kind person. I'm not humble. I'm not gentle. I'm not patient. Those aren't the words that people observing my life would use to describe me. What do I do then? Well, there are times where we go, God, would you help me grow in my security and my significance in Christ so that those virtues would grow out of me? And yes, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But the metaphor he uses of putting on and putting off, clothing ourselves, seems to be a little bit more straightforward than that. And it's not some sort of legalistic do these things in order to earn right standing with God. It's because of what's already true about you. Then wear the clothes that fit. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's really simple. What do you do if you're getting ready to leave the house in the morning and you realize you're not wearing pants? Do you pray about it? Do you search and examine your own heart, trying to figure out what has happened within me that led me to this place of having no pants on? What do you do? Put on pants. Just put them on. What's Paul saying? If you find that this description does not match your reality, clothe yourself. Put on forgiveness. Put on love. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. And the place that you get to practice that is in this community. So I want to ask you this morning. We started by panning way out and looking at all the chaos in our world. But I want to end by just focusing in this place, this moment, and these people. If the church is perfectly designed as a classroom where we learn how to love one another well, then we can trust that as Jesus disciples us, he's going to intentionally, strategically, gently, wisely allow us to find ourselves in situations where we're going to need to put on love in different forms. means we shouldn't be surprised when there's somebody else within our church that's really getting on our nerves. 
We shouldn't be surprised when there's somebody in our community group that we really wish wasn't there. We shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves showing up at something like this and not feeling connected or in relationship, but feeling somehow outside or something like that. All of this is designed to be a process of our formation into Christ. And so we all know the awkwardness and the little things that are annoying about life and community and that sort of thing. But I also feel prompted by the Spirit this morning simply to take a moment and go, some of us, it's much deeper than that. Some of us, it's not just annoying and awkward, but there's actually true pain that we have. Deep wounds, broken relationships. And it may even be that there's people in this room that you are not at peace with. And there could be all different reasons or stories behind that. But that you find yourself here today unable to embrace a brother or sister in the love of Jesus. That happens. But what do we do when that happens? We forgive as we've been forgiven. We put on the reconciling, enemy-loving compassion of Christ. There's places in the scriptures where we're told, before you even come to the table, if you've got stuff with anybody else in the room, it's the perfect opportunity to go, to confess, to pray, to ask for forgiveness, and to, to make things right. We have that chance every week. Now, for some of you, the bitterness, the hurt, the pain that you experience within the body of Christ isn't within somebody in this room, but it's a bigger thing. It's your experience with Christianity, or maybe specifically evangelical Christianity. And again, there's levels of this. Sometimes there's awkwardness or annoying things that have really irked us. And sometimes there's like, no, I was actually abused in or by a church. I've actually truly been hurt. And my invitation in those situations pastorally is to say, yes, there are systems of injustice and there are times where the church with a capital C is the one that's hurt us. And that has to be dealt with. But most often, the source of our pain and wounding within the church if we want to blame it on the church, really it is a person or a few people behind it. Now, notice I'm not denying that this happens. People get hurt in churches. It does. It's not okay, but it's going to happen. And so the invitation is whatever we need to do to seek reconciliation, to make peace, to restore relationship. And ultimately, 
to extend the forgiveness of Christ to those who have wronged us. The church is perfectly designed for us to learn how to do that. Forgiveness is a radical thing. But it's surprisingly logical at the same time. Poet Buddy Wakefield says, to forgive is to release all hope of a better past. It's a gift to yourself as much as it is to the person you're forgiving. And it's an invitation into a life of freedom in Jesus. So church, this morning, if you find that you're not clothed in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, forgiveness, or love, put it on. And if, as you prepare to come to the table this morning, there are people within this room that you sense God prompting you to reach out to, whether it's something really dumb and like, hey, when I said this thing, or something really significant, This is part of who we are and what we're called to do. And as we learn how to love one another well, the world gets to see a picture of what life could look like under the lordship of Christ. And we find ourselves even more equipped to go and to live a life of love in a divided and broken world. Will you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we celebrate the truth that in you all of our deepest needs are met. As those who have been declared chosen, holy, and loved, we pray that your spirit would help us to receive this identity anew today. And we pray, Lord, that you would empower us with your love, with your kindness, with your compassion to become the kind of people this world needs most. People who are secure in our identity and freed up to live the life of Christ's love. Neighbor-loving, enemy-loving love. And we pray that it would start here, in this room, that we would recognize and receive one another, that we would understand that we belong to each other, and that as difficult, as frustrating, as annoying as it can be at times, you are more present than we would ever guess in the life of your church, and you are calling us to yourself and to one another. Here this morning, May we hear your call and respond in faith obedience for the glory of your name and the joy of your world.